You know, September 11 stands out as one of the greatest tragedies of our recent history. It's one of those moments that's kind of frozen in time, one of those uh, moments everyone remembers uh, where they were and what they were doing when they heard the news. In fact, I know I can still like picture in my mind exactly where I was sitting 21 years ago when I saw the footage of the, the first plane crashing into the World Trade Center and then the second. Uh, and the events of that day changed the nature of our society and became a part of our common history that cannot be forgotten. And, you know, it's not just the event itself. Um, we can't ever forget the lives that were lost on that day. The, uh, the American flag that's up there on the display on the screen behind me contains the, the names of everyone who perished on September 11, 2001. The folks on uh, each of the, the planes in Shanksville, PA, uh, the Pentagon, the World Trade Center, New York City, and the destruction uh, of that terrible day extended far beyond the names of those that are listed here. And we can't forget them either. We can't forget the widows who are raising children alone. We can't forget the parents who will never uh, hold their child again. We can't forget the heroism shown by first responders who race toward the buildings to offer aid. And above all, we need to remember uh, in all of these things that that September 11th day taught us as a people uh, because it's been said that those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Now you guys, um, you know there's a pastor I don't go in for topical sermons or I don't skip around from passage to passage in my preaching. Uh, but every once in a while it's good to make an exception. Um, particularly one for this week that seemed almost providential and by that I mean um, not only is today uh, a day of remembrance for the tragedy of September 11th, a day that actually, believe it or not, won't fall again on Sunday until 2033. Um, but if you if you have a bulletin, I thought I had one, if you look at the lectionary readings that are actually uh, assigned for today, uh, I think you'll read they dovetail in perfectly there, right inside your bulletin here, uh, especially the story of the people of Israel from the Old Testament uh, in the book of Exodus chapter 32. Uh, the story of a people who could never seem to recognize the presence of God or ever seem to remember how good God had been to them until something uh, drastic or earth-shaking had happened. And so, you know, again, we've been doing our summer sermon series through the book of Acts, but I'm going to digress this morning to uh, Exodus chapter 32. So if you have your own personal Bible, we'll be Exodus 32, and I'll be reading the first 14 verses. It tells us when the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain. They gathered around Aaron. Come on, they said, make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. And so Aaron said, take the gold rings from the ears of your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. And all the people took the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. Then Aaron took the gold, melted it down, and molded it into the shape of a calf. And when the people saw it, they exclaimed, O oh, Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord told Moses, Quick, go down the mountain. Your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. How quickly they have turned away from the way I commanded them to live. They've melted down gold and made a calf and have bowed down and sacrificed to it. They are saying, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then the Lord said, I have seen how stubborn and rebellious these people are. Now leave me alone, 
so my fierce anger can blaze against them. And I'll destroy them, and then I will make you, Moses, into a great nation. Moses tried to pacify the Lord his God. The Lord, he said, why are you so angry with your own people whom you brought from the land of Egypt with such great power and with such a strong hand? Turn away from your fierce anger and change your mind about this terrible disaster you have threatened against your people. So the Lord changed his mind about the disaster he had threatened to bring his people. The following day, Moses said to the people, you have committed a grave sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I will be able to atone for your sin. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you for uh, the faithful testimony of Old Testament Israel. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that we know that it was written down as an example to us. And so help us to give our attention uh, in these next few moments to whatever that you would teach us from this message by your Holy Spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, if a group of people were ever to experience kind of a, I guess you call it a high watermark uh, moment, God's revelation at Mount Sinai was it. Right? Never before had a people been so privileged as Israel. They had just been liberated, right? They had been set free from 400 years of slavery. Uh, their nation was being born. They were about to be given their own homeland. They had been chosen by God to be his people, his special treasure. And they were to be witnesses to God before all the other nations on earth that there is only one true and living God. And as we read in the Old Testament lesson this morning, Moses had gone up to Mount Sinai uh, to receive the civil and religious laws of God. Uh, the laws that were to form them into a nation and to govern them as a people. Uh, but abruptly and sadly, a, a catastrophic tragedy struck because in their impatience and forgetfulness, uh, the Israelites turned away from God. They lost their faith and their trust in Him. They denied the miraculous deliverance they had seen God provide and rejected and rebelled against Him uh, with an intentional slap in the face in light of all that God had just done for them. When he personally and powerfully intervened on their behalf. And if you read down through the rest of the account in Exodus there, uh, you'll see that although God saved the nation as a whole, about 3,000 people died that day in his judgment. As a temporal judgment against the blatant sin of the golden calf. Does that sound familiar at all? Believe it or not, it's about the same number of people who were killed 21 years ago today. So can we as Americans relate to the people of Israel at all? You bet we can. We have been blessed as a nation like no other people since the birth of the nation of Israel. And the providential hand of God has protected us and guided the destiny of this nation right from the beginning. I just want to give a really quick example. You guys know I'm a history buff. Uh, during the Revolutionary War, George Washington uh, had his life spared on numerous occasions which he credited to God's providence. Uh, and after one particular a battle, the Battle of the Nongahela, he wrote in a letter to his brother John. Uh, he said, I, uh, this first part is a little funny. He says, I have heard since my arrival a circumstantial account of my death and dying speech. I take this early opportunity of contradicting both <laughs> and assuring you that I now exist and appear in the land of the living by the miraculous care of providence that protected me beyond all human expectations. He said, I had four bullets through my coat. And two horses shot out under me, and yet escaped unhurt, although death was leveling my companions on every side. Uh, Washington would write in a later 
letter, but that the hand of providence has been so conspicuous in all this that he must be worse than an infidel that lacks faith and more than wicked that has not gratitude enough to acknowledge his obligations to God. You see, our founding fathers understood that God blesses the nations that acknowledge him, the nations who keep his laws and recognize his providence, uh, who are not ashamed to humble themselves and implore God's help. Uh, and our ancestors did that demonstrably in their struggle for independence. They, they praised God for his blessing. They respected his laws and his commandments. They maintained a healthy fear of God to avoid his wrath and against all odds their trust in God was rewarded with the blessings of victory, whether that be through the Revolutionary War, uh, the ratification of the Constitution, or the establishment of the United States of America as a free and independent nation. And, and God continued to bless us for about the next 150 odd years or so. Uh, and then the nation began to change, not, not overnight, but steadily. Like for instance, Around the turn of the century, there was a concerted lobbying effort by the anti-religious groups to wrestle control of education away from religious schools and from the influence of local communities. Uh, and, and despite assurances from the federal government that nothing would really change, uh, once control of education was taken away slowly but surely, the curriculum changed to reflect a secular progressive agenda. And, and because of that, our collective history was increasingly rewritten with the hand of God removed and erased from our textbooks. And we Christians didn't complain about it. And once firmly in control of the curriculum and backed by federal money, the secular progressive agenda uh, was gradually taught directly to students with the long range goal of remaking society and we Christians did not complain nearly loudly or often enough. Just ask some of the great Christian teachers uh, who have been teachers over the last couple of decades, and they'll tell you, they didn't get a lot of support from the church. In fact, in many cases, they were persecuted. And I know that sounds like kind of a, maybe an unbelievable conspiracy theory, but listen to the words of a, a guy named John Dewey. Anybody know who John Dewey is? Okay. Considered to be the father of the progressive education movement. This is what he wrote in 1930, which is not really that long ago. He wrote in 1930, there is no God and there is no soul. Hence, there is no need for the props of traditional religion with dogma and creeds excluded. Then immutable truth is also dead and buried. He said there's no room for a fixed natural law or moral absolutes. And he continued, you cannot make socialists out of individualists. Children who know how to think for themselves spoil the harmony of collective society, which is coming where everyone is interdependent. And over the years, unnoticed by uh, most parents, more and more of the secular progressive beliefs have been incorporated directly into the curriculum, whether it's history or math or science or social studies, you name it, which is why if I had to do it all over again, uh, my kids would have been homeschooled. Uh, if you don't believe me, just ask Vicki about the content of some of the lessons she's had to uh, help with and the homework assignments she's had to help with uh, over the years. We guys, we've been living this uh, since the kids started school. As a country's true history and the legacy of our pilgrim forefathers and our founding documents, which all point to our God-given rights and responsibilities, are no longer being taught. 1973, a group of liberal philosophers published a document they called the Humanist Manifesto. It was written by a group to lay out their battle plans for reshaping of our nation, particularly the youth. 
And now she says, the battle for humankind's future must be waged and won in the public school classroom by teachers who correctly perceive their role as the prophetizers of a new faith, a religion of humanity, utilizing the classroom instead of a pulpit to carry humans' values to wherever they into wherever they teach. He said the classroom must and will become an arena of conflict between the old and the new, between the rotting corpse of Christianity and the new faith of humanism. And you know that's exactly where we are right now. And because of that, we are raising a generation that has lost its faith and trust in God. The God who has chosen and delivered us, and instead we have chosen to take the world into our own hands and, and to do our own thing. And to go our own way and make golden calves out of the accomplishments of purely human achievements. Telling ourselves as a society that if there really was a God, you must not be too interested in what goes on down here. When all the while it's us that have abandoned him. And what happens when we do that? Well, not only do we damage our relationship with God and miss out on the good plans that God has for our lives. As individuals, but we also fail to live out our purpose and calling as a nation. To be a shining city on a hill. Uh, to witness to the world for the Christ who has called us out and saved us. And church, who is coming back, whether the world believes he is or not. Yeah. Whether we think he's taking too long or not. And most importantly, brothers and sisters, whether we are ready or not. And just like we read uh, when the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Come on, they said, make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. So in other words, what are they doing? They're looking for a quick fix, and anything would do. And it's obvious they've taken their eyes off God because you notice they credited Moses with bringing them out of Egypt instead of God. And, and so taking their jewelry, their man-made adornments, Aaron fashions a man-made God, he makes a golden cap, and he proclaims it as an object of their worship. And so the next day they have a, a huge festival, they're eating and, and drinking and reveling before this false God. That if you think about it, demanded nothing from them spiritually or morally, except what they themselves desire. So one moment they're being supernaturally rescued from physical bondage to the Egyptians, and the next, they found themselves right back in slavery all over again, but this time a slavery of their own making. Does that sound familiar to you? You know, a lot of stuff has changed in the years since the four commercial airlines suddenly became the implements of destruction in the hands of men who hate our nation and its freedom and our God. And for a while after that, we did rely on God again as a nation. Right? Many people turned to God that day. Churches were packed with people who came to repent and pray and to comfort one another, whether they were Republican or Democrat, black or white, young or old. It didn't matter because on that day we were all Americans, united under God. People gathered in town squares. They lined up around city blocks all over the country. Politicians stopped squabbling and came together in defense of our nation. Believe it or not, the president even personally planned and led the memorial service in the National Cathedral. But how long did it last? About as long as Moses was up on Mount Sinai. And you don't have to look very hard to see how far out of God's protective hand we have chosen to go. You know, in the months and years that followed, um, a lot of things that would have been unthinkable just a few years before have happened. And 
there is no end in sight as our society spirals out of control and into insanity. Reminds me of a, uh, a line from a very interesting book uh, called from, uh, from Dawn to Decadence, 500 Years of Western Cultural Life. The author gives what I think is one of the most accurate uh, and concise definitions of what marks the decline of our society. He says this, he says, when a people accept futility and the absurd as normal, the culture has become decadent. So I'm going to put it like this in a little short essay about the time we're living in. It's been attributed to a lot of different people, so I can't tell you who the author is. Um, it's called The Paradox of Our Time. He writes, the paradox of our time in history is that we have taller buildings but shorter tempers, uh, wider freeways but narrower viewpoints. We spend more but have less. We buy more but enjoy less. We have bigger houses and smaller families. More conveniences, but less time. We have more degrees, but less sense. More knowledge, but less judgment. We stay up too late, get up too tired, read too little, watch TV too much, and pray too seldom. We talk too much, love too seldom, and hate too often. He says we've done larger things, but not better things. We've conquered the atom, but not our prejudices. We plan more, but accomplish less. And we've learned to rush, but not to wait. Not to wait, brothers and sisters, just like the people of Israel couldn't wait on God's plan for them. Uh, and so they became a people who somehow never did seem to learn from their mistakes. Uh, because, as we said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Whereas the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them. And all of them walked through the sea on dry ground. All of them ate the same spiritual food and all drank from the same spiritual water. But they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. Yet God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. And these things happened as a warning to us. Right? Who's us? Us. So that we would not crave evil things as they did. See, Paul's saying that the, the stories chronicled in the Old Testament that we read should be an example to us so that we would learn from Israel's failures and their turning away from God, but as a nation, we haven't. Now, that's the bad news. But you know, the good news is I think, I think there's still a lot right about man. And even better, of course, is with God there is always hope. Amen. That's why we read further on down after the sin of the golden calf and the punishment of the people uh, Exodus tells us the following day, Moses said to the people, you've committed a grave sin, and now I'll go up to the Lord, and perhaps I will be able to atone for your sins. And you know, in that moment, Moses is prefiguring the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. But Moses' words and actions show us a picture of what Christ's atonement would look like, and how it would be made by offering himself as the object of God's wrath on behalf of the people. And the next verse after that says, so Moses returned to the Lord and said, oh, what a terrible sin these people have committed. They've made gods of gold for themselves. Now, if you will, uh, only forgive their sins, but if not, erase my name from the record you have written. Wow. You see, Moses is not only ready to intercede for his people. He's willing to die and be eternally banished if it would bring them any consolation. Which again, brothers and sisters, is a foreshadowing of the kind of love our Lord Jesus Christ has for his people. For, for you and me. 
being willing to put himself right in the center of our deepest need, a need that he filled on the cross. At Mount Calvary. At the only place where God's perfect righteousness and his relentless love for us meet and are finally reconciled. Demonstrating, church, that we have a Savior who is willing to come down to where we are so that he can take us to where he is. A God who is willing to have a personal relationship with us in the person of his Son. Whether he is leading people out of Egypt or out of a collapsing tower or just through our own personal struggles and daily pains. And so the question we're left with is how do you and I heed those warnings? How, how, how do we wait for Jesus correctly in this crazy world? How do we keep our eyes on heaven without losing sight of the stark realities of life around us? Um, how do we see God in a day like September 11th? And what do we need to take from the remembrance of one of the most tragic events of our modern history? And I would say, brothers and sisters, the answer to those questions comes from Romans 14, which says, For we do not live for ourselves, or die for ourselves. If we live, it's the honor of the Lord. And if we die, it's the honor of the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Christ died and rose again for this very purpose, to be Lord of both the living and dead. The brothers and sisters, see, God's miracle is not just to lead us out of the wilderness or to make us prosperous. His plan is not to perpetually keep us from dying, but rather it is to take us through death into his eternal presence by the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, and we dare not take our eyes off of him, lest we forget. Lest we forget that no one knows the day or the hour of his return, or the moment of our death. Well, the next tower collapse or human tragedy in church life is short and eternity is long. Today is the day to be saved. And it's the day to remember. Today is the day, and right this moment, the good news of the gospel is free and open to all who receive it. Or, brothers and sisters, you will remember today from an eternity in hell if you leave here this morning having spurned the love of God and the redemption of the cross. And so if you have not already, I say to you in Jesus' name, repent and believe the gospel. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we thank you for your unimaginable mercy that has patience with us over and over and over again. Even though we willfully choose to sin and to slap you in the face and to go after other gods and things of our own desires. And so, Father, we ask only for your grace and mercy. We can't plead for it for anything within ourselves, but we ask it only because of the merit and the sacrifice of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I pray uh, in this moment, for any that's, that are here or any that are listening uh, or will listen to this later, uh, if they don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, Father, that you would be so miraculously present with them, that you would be so conspicuously present in their hearts and their minds, that you would open their eyes to see the beauty of the gospel, and you would redeem them for the sake of your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.